The scripture reading for this morning is 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The word of the Lord. Morning. I'm Mike Stroh, one of the pastors here, and let me add my word of welcome to all of you here this morning, especially if you're a guest or your first time here. We're so glad that you've chosen to worship with us, and we trust that you're encouraged as we turn to God's Word. If you have a Bible, uh, or you can turn to this passage, this is also on our online bulletin page, but 1 John 3, starting in verse number 11. Well, it's one of life's most crucial questions. Asked from the dawn of history by all humanity in one way or another. But perhaps it was captured uh, most poetically and profoundly in a 1993 award-winning hit single. What is love? There it is. See some head bobbing. This is the whole sermon today. I had a busy week. Yeah, you get the idea. Okay. In case you didn't hear those poetic words, what is love? Singer asks over and over again. What is love? That's the question. Oh, baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. What is love? Yeah. Now, I don't know why you're not fair. I give you my love, but you don't care. So what is right and what is wrong? Give me a sign. What is love? Oh, baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Whoa, whoa, oh. Whoa, whoa, oh. <laughs> what is love? It's a question that the world keeps asking and evidently has trouble answering. But we're good at asking, right? I mean, that singer, that songwriter doesn't seem to know the answer. Though at least don't hurt me suggests that there's an expectation that true love, we don't intentionally hurt someone, so maybe there's a start. Most of us seem to think, or most of the world seems to think, that love is a feeling that we just fall into and fall out of, that we're helpless to control. It's just a feeling. In other words, we think we'll know love when we feel it. Well, the Apostle John shows us something very, very different. 
in our text this morning, and he says that we know true love when we see it. He tells us what real love looks like. We're continuing our series through John's epistles. John has been unfolding these central truths throughout this letter so far, the love of God for us, the love of God through us toward others, what it means to abide in Christ and to walk in the light. And last week in our text, John said, look what kind of love the Father has shown us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And in this morning's text, John expands further on what that love looks like flowing through us outward toward others. Because he says, we know true love when we see it in action. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer as we open up these words. Father, thank you for this text of Scripture that is ancient and yet through your Spirit speaks to us in a fresh and in a new way. And so, Father, we ask that your Spirit would be present as we know he is, but that our hearts would be open to your movement among us, that we would be drawn closer to you, that we would see you and ourselves more clearly in the light of Scripture, that our hearts would be drawn more freely to worship you, that we would grow in our love for you and our love for one another. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So look at 1 John chapter 3. Uh, We'll start in verse 11, but if you have the text in front of you, back up real quick just to verse 10, just so we can get our bearings and remember the context here. Verse 10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So again, strong words from John which we've been seeing so far in this letter. But let's remind ourselves of a couple things. I feel like we need to keep, I do at least, need to keep coming back to some central reminders as we move through this text. First, John has been teaching us that our obedience is proof. It's evidence of who we are in Christ. But our obedience is not what earns our place in Christ. And again, he's not talking about sinless perfection. It's easy for us maybe to hear these words as judgmental or a guilt trip and, oh, I don't measure up. That's not what John is saying. John has clearly told us that we all still sin as believers. We all fail at times to practice righteousness. So when he says here that a person is not of God, he's talking about the source of their actions. So when we sin, we can't trace those actions back to God. Those sins don't have their source in God. We are not acting in a way that is of God or from God. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 11. John says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And so remember John's cyclical style. He's returning again and again to similar themes. It feels like deja vu. Wait a minute, John, haven't you you talked about this already? And the answer is yes, he has. But every time he comes back to it, he adds a little bit more to the teaching because he wants us to not just move on to the next thing. Okay, love my brother and sister, check, move on. No, 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 he keeps coming back to these central truths so that we would meditate, so that we would chew on them, and that we would really digest them and make them part of who we are. But he starts here by saying what love doesn't look like. If love is demonstrated in action, which is one of the clear points of this passage, then here he's saying hate is demonstrated in action too. Cain is our example here, an easy uh, role model of hate for us. 
He murdered his brother back in Genesis 4. Why did he do that, John asks? Because his deeds were evil. That sounds a little circular, doesn't it? Why did he do that evil deed? Because his deeds were evil. But it makes sense. Certainly Cain was jealous of his brother. But if you remember the story, God confronts Cain even before the murder. And he says, why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. And so to use John's language, Cain was abiding in evil, which led to evil deeds, which led to evil deeds. He was of the evil one, so his actions could be traced back to the evil one. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 13 seems like a curveball, doesn't it? A change of topic abruptly. But let's remember how parallel John uh, is keeping this letter to his gospel. In John 15, Jesus teaches his disciples the need to love one another, and he follows that right up with saying, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus there is preparing his disciples for the day that he would be gone and they would be operating without him physically present. He says, focus on loving one another and be ready, be prepared to be hated by the world. So how is John picking up that connection here? The false teachers, remember, that he told us about in verse 2 that were trying to infiltrate, trying to influence this church. John told us in verse 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So he's putting them here in the place of the world. Don't be surprised that they oppose you. The world's going to hate you. These false teachers are going to hate you and oppose you. And also, I think he's telling us, after saying not to be like Cain, he's implying that we're sort of in the place of Abel, who was hated by his brother. Cain hated Abel. Why? John says, because he was righteous. In other words, don't be surprised if the, world's, if the world hates you, but let's be sure it's for this reason, because we're righteous. Let's be sure they're hating us for the right reasons. As Peter says in his first letter, to live out of a good conscience so that when we are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter's saying the same, a similar point here, make sure they don't slander you for doing evil. And sometimes Christians, I think we can wear this Hatred of the world is sort of a badge of honor when sometimes people just hate us because we're jerks. <laughs> Speaking for myself there. But our words and our actions tell people whether we are of God or of the devil, as we saw in verse 10. Our actions should be able to be traced back to God. It's not just what we say, but it's how we say it. John says, just like Jesus did, that we show that we have passed from death to life by what? By our love. Just when we thought John was going to let us off easy for once, first he says, don't be like Cain. Okay, well, I haven't murdered my brother. I mean, I don't even have a brother, so at least, boom, I got that one, check. 
Now, wait a minute. Verse 15, he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Have you ever acted hatefully? Have you ever had hate in your heart towards someone or spoken hateful words? Better wipe off that check mark. Just as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, just as lust makes us guilty of adultery, so too being angry with our brother or sister without a cause makes us guilty of murder. So while John is pointing out what love looks like, how, can, how we can see it by outward deeds, it all starts in the heart. Our actions flow out of what comes out of the heart. So again, we cannot take from these words, from John's, admon- John's admonition, Just do better. Just do more righteous actions. He's saying, yes, we need to obey God. We need to love like Jesus loves. But the whole point is we can't do that. We can't do that ourselves. And so he keeps coming back to the idea of abiding. Abide in Christ. Abide in him. Abide in God's love. Walk in the light where God is. We come to Jesus. We receive his Love, his forgiveness, eternal life by grace alone. And then the whole Christian life is this matter of abiding. Abide in that life that he's given to us. Draw on his provision. And so when we choose to sin, we don't lose our salvation. We are eternally secure in Christ. But we can choose not to abide. We can choose not to walk in close fellowship with Jesus. And this is why John can say, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him wait a minute, we're all guilty of murder. So he's saying not that anybody who hates doesn't have eternal life, but that that, when we have that hate, eternal life is not abiding in us. When we hate, our words and our actions cannot cannot be traced back to God. They don't have their source in Christ. And so with that, let's move on from what love doesn't look like to what he shows us love does look like. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If Cain was our example for hateful action, John now gives us the ultimate example of love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. It all comes back to the sacrificial love of Jesus for us. The giving of the Son by the Father, The Son giving his life for us willingly. This is the greatest expression of love there is. And by the way, uh, this is 1 John 3.16, where John says here is what love looks like, which is parallel to John 3.16 in his gospel. God so loved the world that he gave. This is what love looks like. We know love when we see it. This is love. What is love? This is it. This is the answer. Jesus laying down his life for us. So then the point he's making is, if this is love, and it is, then we love by also laying down our lives for the brothers and sisters, he says. John is again drawing from the words of Jesus from his own gospel, the Last Supper discourse in John 15, where Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what John is saying here. But if that kind of love, laying down our lives for someone, sounds just too big, too lofty, or abstract, John gets real practical in verse 17 and 18, doesn't he? But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is really the heart of our passage this morning. Again, this affectionate invitation, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Love is shown, he's saying, in action. Like when we see someone in need, how do we respond? The unloving response, he's saying, is to close our hearts, and that's a vivid image. That could be translated, have no pity, and pity has the idea of this deep emotional concern or sympathy. So again, it's all about our actions, but it's really all about the heart, because the actions flow from the heart. Here, John may have had Deuteronomy 15 in mind, where Moses tells us, if any among you, one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient to his need, whatever it may be. Parallel language there that John is drawing on. But then in Deuteronomy 15, right after that comes this warning. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near. So in the seventh year, debts would be canceled in Israel according to the law. And so God is saying, don't withhold lending from your brother or sister, the one in need, because it's getting close to the seventh year and you might not get your money back. Don't rationalize yourself out of doing a good thing, meeting a need. How much more is this true of us in Christ? How can we withhold when God has given us everything in Christ? And so John says so strongly here, don't just love and talk, but in action. And to love in truth here really means the same thing, to love truly. It's more emphasis on putting reality to what you're saying. Like James says in James chapter 2, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? It's easy for us to do this. It's easy just to offer a word when we have the the means, when God has given us the opportunity to be of more tangible help. James is saying, if someone's cold and hungry, don't say be warmed and be filled. Give them a coat and a bowl of soup. In our modern uh, vernacular, we, we might say the simple thing, hey, thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Now, prayers are never empty if we're really praying for the person. But how often might we say, hey, I'll, I'll pray for you about that. And then maybe we forget. Or better yet, how often do we pray for someone without thinking how God might use us to be the answer to that prayer? Now, of course, none of us can meet all the needs we see. There are needs all around us all the time. This passage is not a guilt trip. It's an invitation, though, to look at our hearts. When we see a need, what is our heart posture? Is it closed? Closed heart? Closed hands? Or is it open heart, open hands? So let's look at verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. 
just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So again, John lays out his admonition and he closes on an encouraging note. This isn't shame on you for not loving good enough. But it's to say, little children, I see the love of Christ in you. The love of Christ is at work in you, so keep living in that. Keep living it out. And when we condemn ourselves, and we do, many of us are really good at self-condemnation, he says God is greater than our hearts. In Christ, we can reassure ourselves, we can tell ourselves the truth and tell each other the truth about who we are in Christ. The NIV translates this reassurance as, set your hearts at rest in his presence. And I like the way the message paraphrase puts this section He says, this is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there's something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. And so if you struggle with debilitating self-criticism, you know that that can keep you from abiding in Christ. Sometimes we think it's holy, sometimes we think we're having the right perspective, but we say in our hearts, I'm so messed up, God would not want me to abide with him. I keep failing. I keep struggling with sin. John says, reassure your heart. Confess your sins, repent of your sin, receive his forgiveness, and keep abiding. God is greater than your condemning heart. And look at the beauty that he lays out here. There's more way more here than we can take time on, but look at the beauty of this life of abiding, this confidence in God's presence. God is answering our prayers. He's pouring out love on us, and we do what pleases him because of the life of Jesus in us. We have the Spirit of God in us to assure us all the more that we are in Christ, that we are in the truth, that we are enabled to abide. I look very, very quickly at chapter 4. We don't have time to look at verses 1 through 6, but John builds on his reassurance in the Spirit, and here turning to discerning truth from lies, and we do that with the gospel truth that the false teachers were denying. And look at verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Remember, this church was currently, at this moment, struggling under the influence of false teachers, but he says, past tense, you have overcome them. Just as God is greater than our self-condemnation inside, God is greater than all the opposing forces outside. So if you know Jesus as your Savior, John is saying to us, to you, you are of God. You are in Christ. You overcome. So John's admonition, yet again, is for us to grab a hold of this truth, to sink just a little bit deeper into the love of Christ, this reality, and abide more deeply in it. He says we abide in this way of life by loving, not just in word, but in action, a sacrificial, self-giving love. Most of us will never be called to give our lives literally for someone else. But we do see practical needs around us. Could be our money giving freely as God has given to us, but also our time, being with someone who's hurt or lonely, coming alongside someone struggling with discouragement or self-condemnation, 
reminding them of who they are in Christ. We can't meet every need, but God has equipped each of us with unique gifts, with resources, with time, with talents, unique spheres of influence where God has placed us to advance his kingdom. And so we need to ask God to grow our vision for the needs around us, that what he's calling, what he's equipped each of us to do, to needs that we can help meet. And as a church, we need to keep praying together and moving into our vision and exploring how we can collectively love our community well. So what is love? John doesn't so much define love here, but he shows us what it looks like. It's not just a feeling. He says we know it when we see it. We look at Jesus on the cross, and there's our answer. But what does it look like? What does love look like to the world around us? How do they see Jesus on the cross? They look at us. And so we need to keep coming back to the main thing. And John couldn't be clearer what that main thing is. Believe in Christ and love one another. Sometimes we as Christians seem to think love is optional. If we vilify or make enemies out of those people over there, then it's okay to be hateful, right? Because we're standing for the truth. But it must be the truth in love. Because if it's not loving, it's not Christian. If we don't have love, as the whole New Testament says, we've already lost. We're already of the world ourselves. On this topic, I've had a quote that I read bouncing around my head all week. I read it a long time ago in a Bible study, but as I've been studying this text this week, this statement keeps popping into my head. From Dallas Willard and Jan Johnson in their books, I know many of you have, have read it or gone through it in a connection group, but Renovation of the Heart and Daily Practice. And in one of the chapters, they're speaking on the kind of life that truly just freely lives out this kind of love. And they ask, wouldn't it be smarter not to fight fire with fire, but with a shocking amount of water? A shocking amount of water. I love that phrase. It seems so counterintuitive to what our default flesh posture is, and yet this is a gospel question. This is how Jesus lived. This is how Jesus modeled love for us. A shocking amount of love. The enemy is trying to deceive Christians today to fight the enemy with the enemy's own weapons. To fight fire with fire. But John is showing us another way. Little children love. Keeps coming back to that for John. So think of that person in your life. Think of that relationship. Maybe you're struggling to love. You're struggling to show love to someone. Maybe it's a group of people, those of a, a political party that's not yours. Maybe it's a coworker who gets under your skin. Maybe it's a strained relationship with a close friend or family member. Or it's that argument on social media that gets you fired up every time you see it. Instead of going with our default approach and what our flesh might lead us to do, I think John is inviting us to ask God what it would look like to bring a shocking amount of water instead. What would change if I approached this person with an open heart and open hands? Being so free, so secure in the love of God for me that I'm free in my love to take risks, to be vulnerable before that person. I'm free to listen more than speak. I'm free to sacrifice for the good of someone else, free to give even if 
especially if I don't get anything in return. John says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Close with a prayer by St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. Amen. Hands to our feet.